Go ahead and take a seat, please. My notes tell me that I need to be sure to at least say Happy Easter to everyone. I don't know how some people in the world keep track of all these things coming up. More than a few days in advance, I've been walking around in stores and people say Happy Easter. I think, yeah, I got to think about that on Sunday. Happy Easter. And happen again and again. And then this morning I thought, that's the best I'm going to be able to do. Put a little note in there that says Happy Easter. Easter. If you're visiting with us, we're thankful to have you um, here. A part of uh, our worship this morning, as Brian mentioned, we do uh, celebrate the resurrection every single Sunday. We've been going through a series looking at Isaiah, and we are going to continue that series with you this morning. Uh, I think we realize that we live our lives within interconnected webs of trust. You probably don't think of it in that language. You probably might not even consciously realize it. But every day that you do something, you are trusting in others to do certain things at the same time. In fact, as you drove to church this morning, I'm guessing without thinking about it, you were trusting that the other people stayed on their proper side of the road. Because if they didn't, that would not be good news for you. As you sit in this very building, you are trusting in the construction of those who built the roof. Trusting that it won't collapse on us and kill us. See, it's Easter. We have to have some happy thoughts here, okay? As you sit in these pews, you are trusting that they will be able to hold your weight up. Trust. It's something that we do frequently in and out every moment of the day. You're probably trusting that the person beside you is not a psychotic killer who might take your life if you were to doze off in the middle of this sermon. We live in these interconnected webs of trust. And because of that, sometimes I think mostly subconsciously, we are looking around and asking, is this a trustworthy thing? And is this a trustworthy person? Is this a trustworthy situation? There are some things that as we look at it, they're going to get a low grade of trust and we're not going to go there. We're not going to do that. We're not going to trust that person. And then there's other contexts where there is such high trust that we completely relax knowing that everything's going to turn out and be just fine. And we pay a lot of attention to the trust formula because we know when we get it wrong, we know it hurts. Have you ever trusted a friend to keep a promise that they didn't keep? It hurts. Have you ever shared a secret with someone that you trusted them to keep, but they didn't? Have you ever purchased something Trusting that it would work when it got home and it broke the very first time you used it. Have you ever, and this is completely theoretical, rented a car, expected to be there to pick it up and find out the car place was closed when you got there? We live in a world where we have these relationships of trust and we trust certain things to happen in the times, in the places, in the ways that it works. And so one constancy we have in our lives is we're constantly scanning the horizon, asking ourselves, can I trust this, this person, this thing? This situation. And in that way, we can transport ourselves back to those many thousands of years ago into the days of Isaiah, where Israel, too, where Judah is looking around and is constantly trying to evaluate if they can trust the surrounding nations. You're going to notice here in a moment a map from the Nelson's book of Bible maps. And you're going to notice that uh, we'll go to the slide right before that one. You're going to notice on this slide that Judah is not an island. Uh, Judah is surrounded by other nations. 
And what those other nations are doing politically and in terms of their military is of concern to Judah. Not only are they surrounded by these other nations, but they live in this boomerang shape of the pink on your map in front of you, which is called the Fertile Crescent, which means there's this really, um, it's good land. It's good land for farming. It's good land for raising um, animals. And in the middle of it, Judah finds themselves in this trade route. So if you think about a tug of war that would happen, Judah's right in the middle of all of these other national, military, political things that's happening. And so because they do not live on an island, because they are surrounded by these other nations, the common wisdom of the day says that smaller nations like Judah have two options. Number one, they're going to have to submit to somebody who is more powerful than them. Or number two, they are going to have to form protective alliances. And that's the situation that we covered when we looked at Isaiah chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. Aram and Isaiah, we're going to go back one more. Caitlin, we're going to be right there is perfect. Thank you. Um, Aram and Israel form an alliance. They come against Judah. Judah says, "Uh uh-oh, it's not going to work out. Isaiah says, don't worry, trust God. He's going to deliver you. And they said, actually, we're going to form an alliance with Assyria. And so in that first test of trust, Judah fails. Uh, There is going to be coming up shortly in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 36, there's going to be almost an exact parallel trust, different kings, different situations. But Israel's Judah is going to have to go through this again. And in the meantime, what's going to happen is Isaiah is going to take Judah to a school of trust. He's going to teach them things they need to know in order to develop and to mature in their trusting relationships. See, God wants to know that he, them to know that he is worthy of their trust. And so what we find, where we find ourselves in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23 is in Isaiah's first lesson in this private tutoring about the importance of trusting God. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's 10 chapters, and Craig can take an hour on 10 verses. So what I'm going to do in, in our lesson today is I'm going to give you kind of some handholds. So afterwards, when you go back and you read this, hopefully these pieces will make sense, but we're going to just touch on a few um, parts of this section. So Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1, the oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. One of the things that we're going to realize really quickly is we are in a new section. It's a new chapter of Isaiah, even though in our books, this just simply goes from verse to verse. And the way that you're going to notice that is by the similarity of what you see compared to 1 verse 1 and 2 verse 1. Each of this, chapter 1 is the introduction to the book. Chapter 2 is the introduction to the very first section. And you'll notice there are some similarities. Each speak of what Isaiah, some of Amos, saw. And then we notice there is also a difference. The context of what is concerning shifts. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's concerning uh, Jerusalem and Judah. And now we're going to find out the, the focus is now shifting. Here specifically, it talks about Babylon. What we're going to find out is this is uh, Isaiah's oracles against the nation. What Isaiah is going to do is he's going to take Judah to the school of geography, the school of history, the school of politics, and he's going to talk about the nature of, the, of all of these other nations that surround Judah. And so we are going to have these several nations will be mentioned specifically in our chapters. Um, There's other nations mentioned, but here's the ones that are mentioned about an oracle concerning Babylon, Moab, Damascus, Egypt, the wilderness of the sea, Edom, the plain, uh, the desert plain, the valley of vision and Tyre. And what we're going to realize is that Isaiah is saying, look, here's all the nations that are close to us. Here's all of the nations that would be potential candidates for who we should put our trust in. 
These are the nations that are going to say, should we form an alliance with them? Will they protect us from them? And God's going to give his perspective on each one of these nations that geographically surrounds Judah. And the oracles that Isaiah will give are going to give messages of both judgment and messages of hope. And that likely will not be surprising to any of you because as we've been looking through this, time and time again, Isaiah will have messages of what? Judgment, very closely followed by messages of hope. So here's a sampling of some of the messages of destruction that will come to some of these nations. Of Babylon, it is said, See the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Speaking of Isaiah of Assyria, Isaiah says, I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot. His yoke shall be removed from them and his burden from their shoulders. Of Philistia, it is said, Wail, O gate, cry, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, for all of you. For smoke comes out of the north and there is no straggler in its ranks. Of Moab, it is said, therefore let Moab wail. Let everyone wail for Moab, mourn utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kir Hersheth. Of Damascus, it is said, see, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. So as you go to this tutoring school of Isaiah saying, let me tell you about these nations. One of the themes that you will quickly notice is that some of these nations are going to experience judgment to differing levels and differing amounts of intensity. But there's also the recognition that there will be messages of hope that is scattered throughout these oracles of the nations. Here's once again a sampling of what will happen with these nations in terms of hope. Regarding Moab, it is said, let the outcasts of Moab settle among you. So this is speaking to Judah. They are to welcome the outcasts of Moab. Be a refuge to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased, the marauders have vanished from the land Then a throne shall be established in steadfast love in the tent of David, and on it shall sit faithfulness, a ruler who seeks justice and is swift to do what is right. There is now hope for Moab as Jerusalem welcomes them. Of Ethiopia in chapter 8, verse 7, it says, At that time gifts will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, a land the rivers divide to Mount Zion, to the place of the Lord of hosts. So this foreign nation is now coming and bearing gifts, presenting it to God. Of Egypt, it is said, On that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the center of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord on its borders. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send a Savior and will defend and deliver them. The Lord will make himself known among the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord on that day and will worship him with sacrifice and burnt offerings and they will make vows and the Lord will perform them. And of Tyre, it is said her merchandise and her wages will be dedicated to the Lord. Her profits will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothes for those who live in the presence of the Lord. So you see messages of judgment. And then also messages of hope as people will begin to turn to, begin to recognize, and begin to serve God. So as we try to make sense of this oracle section in these 10 verses, one of the things we need to realize is that the oracles are concerning the nations, but they are given to Judah. In other words, this is different than probably one of the most famous 
uh, person who was given a word against the nation would be uh, Jonah. Remember, Jonah went and he told the Ninevites, this is the message, and the message was a warning so that they might turn away. Isaiah is not going to each of these places and saying, hey, Babylon, I've got a message for you. Hey, Assyria, I've got a message for you. Hey, Moab, I've got a message for you. He is giving this message in the private tutoring school, the session to Judah. There's something they are supposed to learn about themselves in relationship to the nations. So it makes us wonder, what does God want Judah to learn about the oracles that we find in this section of Isaiah? And I think the first thing he wants them to learn is the nature of his relationship with the nations. God rules over the nations and that God is not geographically bound. As Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over all nations. See, for us, this is a very common concept that we're used to. But God is not bound by geographic borders. God is not like apples today. If you've ever traveled internationally, you will come to find that if you try to take an apple into another country, they're not going to let you do it because those apples are not allowed in this place. And people used to believe that the gods were that way, that the God of Egypt would live in Egypt. And so if you were in Egypt and you went to a different land, then you are now under the rule of the God of that particular land. But what God is telling Judah is it doesn't matter whether you go to all of these nations around you, there is still one God who rules over all the nations. And that is the God of Israel. It is the God of Jacob. It is the God of our forefathers. Isaiah experienced this whenever it was said in Isaiah 6.3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He wants Judah to realize no matter where you go, he reigns as the sovereign ruler over that area. There will also be a time that will come when all of those nations will be incorporated under God's kingdom rule. These are people who we currently see as adversaries, who God says at one point they are going to come under my rule and they will be under in service and submission to me. And this is a theme we've seen throughout Isaiah. I haven't highlighted it yet, but we'll do that now. Isaiah 2.2, speaking of the mountain of the Lord, has said that all nations will stream to it. In 2.4, we are told that he shall judge between the nations. If he judges between the nations, it means he now has rulership over the nations. Isaiah 11.9 says that the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. Or 12.3, make known his deeds among the nations, proclaim his name, his name that is exalted. I think sometimes we have a misunderstanding about the nature of God's relationship with Israel. Israel, again, being inclusive of Judah as well. We do know it's an exclusive relationship. God says, out of all the nations of the world, I choose you. We do know it is a preferential relationship where God says, I'm going to treat you in a special preferential way. But some people believe that this means that God then has a, a particular relationship with Israel for the sake of exclusivity. That, that, that in other words, God kind of sets up his lunch table in the cafeteria and he says, all the cool kids can sit at this table, but if you're not one of the cool kids, you're not welcome. Don't come sit at this table. And some people think that's the kind of a relationship that God has with Israel. But instead, the relationship that God has with them is universality through particularity. In other words, God says, hey, let's form this club, let's form this team, and people can see what it looks like to work together, to live together, to honor one another, to serve one another. And when they see that, they're going to come over and say, can I be a part of the club? And what, what's God going to say? Absolutely. That's why we set up this club, because we want everyone to see what life looks like when you live 
under submission to God. God blesses Israel in a specific way so that the nations will see the way that God blesses them and they will want to then come and be a part of God's kingdom people. And so God wants all people to acknowledge his rule over the world and to submit to him. So, first thing God wants them to learn is the nature of their relationship with the nations. Now, what else does God want them to learn? He wants them to learn the nature of the nation's relationship with God. See, what's clear is right now the nations don't acknowledge God. They don't recognize God. They don't fear God. But God says there will come a day and time when he will address their arrogance. He will address their pride. Isaiah has already told us in chapter 2, verse 11, The haughty eyes of the people shall be brought low, and the pride of everyone shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And initially, whenever he was speaking of everyone, we thought that was everyone within Judah, that that God's going to humble them. And now we come to find out everyone is what? Everyone's actually everyone in the world. Anybody who stands with pride and arrogance before God and says, Hey, there's nothing you can do to me. God says, those people will be brought low. That becomes a theme of what is addressed throughout these oracles against the nations. Of Babylon, it is said, I will put an end to the pride and the arrogant and lay low the insolent of the tyrants. Then he says, of the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and pride of the Chaldeans will be, again, it's going to be brought down. 1411, your pomp is brought down to Sheol. Of Moab, we have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride and his insolence. His boasts are false. Of Tyre, the Lord of hosts has planned it to defile the pride of all glory, to shame the honored of the earth. What God wants is for all people to have an Isaiah 6 experience where they realize he is exalted and therefore as he is exalted, they will find their proper place in relationship to God. Currently, the nations stand as proud. They stand as arrogant. And until they are brought low, they will not recognize the true sovereignty of God. So they must be brought low. Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts. And God's saying, the nations have their opinion about me, about my power, about my ability. But there will come a time in the future that God says, it will be very clear about the fact about where I stand in relationship to the nations. So, what does God want Judah to learn from the oracles in this section? We see the final kind of culminative lesson is this, the nature of Judah's relationship with the nations. Now, There is a temptation here to turn this into a missionary sermon and say, see, so now we go out and we participate and we do all those things. That would be a great sermon, but unfortunately, it's not the lesson of the text that we have here this morning. The text is teaching us this. The Judah, it does not make any sense for Judah to place herself in a submissive relationship to another nation that God already has power over. That that this is the nation who God has said, I have a covenant relationship with you. And why would they look at any other nation and say, ooh, I think we'd be better off with them. If all the nations around them are going to be brought low, if all the nations around them are going to be submissive to God, then the only relationship that matters is the nature of their relationship with God. If Judah is going to trust someone in a battle, why would she trust anyone other than God? Because all these other nations are going to be brought low by him. The message seems to be clear. Do not put your trust in nations because they are inferior to the superiority of God. If you already have a house that's built on a rock, why would you trade it for a house that's built on the sand? 
Isaiah wants the people to know the foolishness of what it would look like to form alliances with these other nations when they already have a relationship with God. And so I think we find ourselves like Judah, constantly trying to evaluate the trustworthiness of nations. And sometimes we are tempted to put trust in the wrong things. Now, I don't think that many of us, I'm just guessing here, but I don't think many of us are are thinking about putting our trust in foreign nations, unless it's Canada, I could understand that. But otherwise, you say, you know what? No, thank you very much. I think we're okay here. It's not like we need Jamaica to come and back us up to help us feel a little safer. So that's not the source of our temptation for trust. But I do think we're often tempted to trust in the wrong sorts of things. Here's one thing that I think is a common, and I think will be an increasing source of trust that we are drawn to, which is putting trust in ourselves. We've come to think that we're pretty big deals, worthy of trust. I don't know if you know the actor Matthew McConaughey, but after he had a couple of successful movies, he said it kind of got to his head a little bit. He had a terrible 18 months, and then he turned to God. And this is the prayer that he prayed to God. If you are there, God, I hope you appreciate a man who won't retreat from the sweat it takes to gain self-determination. I I hope you will reward a man who has decided to quit hiding behind the fatal blind belief that it's all in your hands. And reflecting on that moment, he said, I needed to own that it was my hands on the steering wheel. Who do you trust in? Do you trust in yourself? You control yourself an awful lot more. Or do you trust in God? See, I don't think we'd say it directly, but I think there's a temptation for all of us to say, don't worry. I've got it. I can do it. I can handle it. See, when it came to Judah, Judah was not faithful to her test when it came to trusting in God. So God's going to say, here's all the things you're trying to trust in. He's going to recognize that they're empty. And then we're going to find, again, in the future in Isaiah, and I won't give away what happens there, that there's going to be a similar test. What have you learned, Judah? And I wonder if God might not do the same thing with us. Give us an opportunity to trust him. And if we don't, maybe he'll teach us for a little while. And then guess what? He'll give us another opportunity to see what kind of trust we have. There's a Christian writer named Robert Clinton. And as he goes through, he looks at um, maturing and developing people. And he says, how did these people develop their faith? How did they mature? And he started to notice a theme. No matter how many such people he looked at, that God was working in their lives. He started to notice there were these what he calls process items that they go through, tests of sorts that they go through. And these are the three that he said, every leader, every Christian will go through any one of these three and usually a combination of them, um, an integrity check, a test that God uses to evaluate intentions and actions and to shape our character. There's an obedience check. it's, It's wondering whether we are going to be willing to listen to God's voice and to obey his instructions. Then there's the word check, learning to follow and live according to the truths you discover in God. And Robert Clinton says these are much like the grades in school, where if you go to first grade and you don't learn how to read and you don't learn how to write and you don't learn how to do math, guess what they're going to do the next year? I know this from experience, at least with the fourth grade it happened. They're going to say, why don't you try it again? Because there's no point moving you on to multiplication if you still haven't even learned to add. And so what God has given Judas, God has given them the obedience check and the word check. And guess what happened? They were unfaithful. And God says, all right, let's go to school. Time for a little bit of tutoring. And he gets ready to do it again. 
What I want us to be looking for this week, what I want us to be aware of this week, is that God is going to bring some of these tests to us. An integrity test, an obedience test, and a word test. And I want you to be especially watching for it, asking yourself, am I going to be faithful? Am I going to put my trust in this or in that? Or am I going to put my trust in God Almighty? Because the truth is the foundation of a Christian life is built on trust. What do we as Christians trust in? We trust in the goodness of God, a God who from the very beginning has loved and pursued his people. We trust in the truth of the word of God, that the word of God is living and active. What do we trust in? We trust that God sent his own son to renew and to restore relationship with a broken people. What do we trust in? We trust in the power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the grave. What do we trust in? We trust in the promises of God, that he who promises will be faithful. The promise that today will be, today will be better in Christ and tomorrow will be better because of Christ. The Christian life is simply about trusting God. For some of you, you've already made a profession of faith. You've confessed that I do trust in God, and yet you're going to find these tests, and sometimes you're successful, and sometimes you're not. And so if you want somebody to talk about that with you, I'm going to be in the back. Some of our elders will be back there in just a moment. Let's talk about what it looks like to live that life of faith. Or maybe you've said, you know what, I've never really fully said, God, I trust you. I've never fully given myself over in the waters of baptism to die to my old way of living. Then this is an opportunity that we have this morning for anybody who wants to profess complete and other trust in God. I'll offer a word of blessing and we'll sing a song and you'll have the opportunity to come back in just a moment. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. As we go from here, may we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you have any kind of a need, come and find us in the back while we stand and sing this next song together.